This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Right, it is time for our weekly opportunity to highlight the main school stories of the week. It is our special segment, Eye on Education. Uh, so we'll just take a look at basically the top headlines from this week. Uh, and Zena joins me in the studio. And we have good news for children taking exams this year. That's right, Georgia. GCSE and A-level exams will be held in person this year for the first time since the pandemic started in 2020. Uh, As you know, a lot of children were upset because they studied hard for their exams uh, only to find out they were either cancelled or not taking place in person. Experts from the UK will be conducting workshops with students in in a few Dubai schools to ensure exam readiness ahead of the GCSE and A-level exams uh, that will be conducted offline this summer. Exciting times. It really is exciting times. Uh, Lots of schools are organising sets of mocks examinations ahead of those final exams in May and June. I remember my mocks. They were a big deal. Did you do GCSEs and A-levels? No. uh, Our system is slightly different, but I'm sure we had something similar. And I know how, uh, you know, how hard exams can be and, you know, the the time devoted to revise for these exams. So tell me what... What, what were well, your exams like? I mean, like? it was just a really big deal, basically. You just, you just did loads and loads of prep. And they started talking about the exams right from, you know, when you were 14. You mm-hmm. ba- basically, for GCSEs and A-levels, you do a two-year prep for, for each of them. As far as, I mean, I hope it's the same. Uh, and I remember the build-up of stress and pressure and the sense that basically the whole of the spring holidays were taken up with revising and extra classes. Uh, and I presume it's the same now. I, I mean, I imagine the stress has only got, got worse. So we'll have to discuss that. We might actually look into that on the program uh, next week because it is really interesting to hear how people are preparing uh, for those exams. Uh, obviously, there was a great furore about the results over the last couple of years when they were assessed from uh, basically from from the teachers decided what grades they should get. So this will be the first year for, for two years that there'll, there'll be proper assessed exams. Really, really interesting. Um, this week, uh, we also celebrated Emirati Children's Day on Tuesday, didn't we? And there was, uh, in tandem with that, there was Abu Dhabi hosted the World Early Childhood Development Forum, which was really, really interesting. One of the big news stories that came out of that, we will be discussing at midday. It is the fact that His Highness Sheikh Saif bin Zayed, who's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of the Interior, uh, he called on social media companies at that conference to do more to protect children from online sexual exploitation. Uh, we'll be talking about that uh, just after midday. Uh, His Highness said that incidents of online child exploitation across the world were up 106% from the previous year in 2020 and highlighted the need for tougher action. Gosh, that is a high number. Uh, And of course, uh, uh, we're speaking to a few social media companies. We're hearing from TikTok. uh, And we're also hearing from Henry Platten, live on air, who is the founder of GoBubble. It's a social media platform uh, that uh, claims to be safe for children. Meanwhile, uh, the KHDA has been tweeting busily this week, haven't they, Z? Yes, they're always tweeting busily, but uh, they have called for Emirati parents to share their views on early childhood centres. Now, they tweeted, are you an Emirati parent with a child or children aged below six years and interested in sharing your views on early childhood centres? That means, you know, that includes nurseries, play schools, uh, etc. in Dubai. Do join our online focus group session. They have one on the 22nd of March. That's Tuesday at 10 a.m. Meanwhile, the UAE authorities have been showing their support for children with autism. 
Absolutely. This week, His Highness Sheikh Hamdan bin Mohammed uh, bin Rashid Al Maktoum, he's of course a crown. Crown Prince of Dubai, he visited the Dubai Autism Center uh, and he stressed that Dubai was really focused on delivering the highest quality of services to people with disabilities. Now, his visit uh, comes ahead of uh, Autism Day, which is on the 2nd of April this year. And I know that uh, we always have big campaigns with regards to autism every year. April is Autism Awareness Month as well. So this his visit couldn't have been uh, timed better. And, uh, you know, just his visits speaks volumes about the amount of support the UAE government has for children with autism. It really does. And, and I mean, that non-profit facility established back in 2001, I mean, that you know, that's over two decades ago mm-hmm. now, uh, to, with, it, with the purpose of providing support for children with the disability, uh, to give you a bit of a sense uh, of how common it is, the World Health Organization suggests that one in 160 children globally are believed to be on the autism spectrum. Uh, the UAE cabinet approved a national policy for people with autism uh, back in April 2021. Uh, it set out ways to provide people with autism with easy access to services and to ensure their inclusion in education and the wider society, and to train more qualified professionals. Uh, We actually discussed inclusivity on the programme last week. If you missed that uh, that interview. It's absolutely we, we did several interviews and we also spoke to the KHDA. Uh, if you want to listen back to it then please do check out our podcast uh, you can go to uh, Dubai I 1038 FM uh, or one, Dubai1038.com Dot is the website and then forward slash the agenda that- podcasts and then go to the agenda Ion Education has its own podcast so if you are an educator a student, a parent who is concerned about your child's education, check out that podcast uh, and uh, this week's podcast will also be up there this afternoon. Fantastic. Right. Our next topic, we are going to be looking into more detail of this subject because it is a massive survey that was done around the world. And I suppose on one level, the result isn't that unexpected. Uh, but nevertheless, it is something that needs to be discussed because nearly 40% of young people aged 18 to 24 in the Middle East struggled with their mental health last year. That is according to a global study that was done by Sapien Labs, which is a non-for-profit organisation out of the United States. Uh, we'll be discussing that in more detail and what we can do to protect our children and help our children uh, with Beth Kerr, who is Group Director of Wellbeing at Cognita Schools, which of course owns the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, out here. And also Aditi Batia. Now she's a lecturer at the School of Science and Technology at Middlesex University. But we also want to hear from you. Uh, have you found that your teens have struggled with their mental health over the last couple of years? We'd be really interested to know about their experiences, about your experiences, uh, and how you've been able to, to help them get through that, or indeed, uh, whether they are still struggling. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back. Now, a recent survey has shown that nearly 40% of young people aged 18 to 24 in the Middle East struggled with their mental health last year. 40%. That 
That is a big number. And it's according to a global study by Sapien Labs, which is a non-for-profit organisation out of the United States. Now, researchers ascribed the worrying trend to the COVID-19 pandemic with its repeated lockdowns, uh, study at home and long spells of enforced isolation. They polled 223,000 people in 34 countries with widespread internet access. And they also pointed to that. They suggested that the surge in mobile phone and internet use meant people more widely were spending less time making human connections, a trend that the study's authors believe needs immediate attention. Joining us now to discuss this key topic is Beth Kerr, who is Group Director of Wellbeing at Cognita Schools. Uh, Now they own several schools here in the United Arab Emirates, including the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. We're also joined on the line by Aditi Bhatia. Now she's a lecturer at the School of Science and Technology in Middlesex University right here in the United Arab Emirates. Thank you both for joining us on Microsoft Teams. A pleasure to speak to both of you. Hello. Hi, Hi, Georgia. Hi, lovely to have you with us. Now, we wanted to get um, somebody from a school and somebody from a university because obviously this study was about 18 to 24-year-olds, but it's too late to sort of think about children's mental health by the time they get to 18. You know, you really do need to start earlier that, than that. So, Beth, I mean, you have experience in schools. How can we teach children to manage their own mental health? Because while we can support them as parents, we can support them as schools, ultimately this is something that they're going to need to understand themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And you're quite right to say that um, it, it's, you know, we should be starting earlier. We know that 50% of all mental health conditions begin by the age of 14 um, and, and 75% by the age of, of 24. And we also know that the, the that period of adolescence, the brain is very malleable. So we are missing out on, on a key time to, to give students um, some really great ways of managing their own mental health. I think really when we look at that the first thing I'd like to say is there is a real symbiotic relationship between physical health and mental health that they really are two sides of the same coin um, and and so you know bearing that in mind I think the first thing is to get young children or young young students to understand and recognize what does positive mental health mean for them and I mean somatically how does it feel in their body how does it feel emotionally what does it look like in terms of their behavior then they need to sort of think, well, what contributes to it? It's all very well thinking, well, yeah, I don't really feel great at the moment, but what contributes to it? And again, that's where I would really reattach physical and mental health. In, in, in our schools, we look at the, the Be Well Charter, which talks about sleep, diet, exercise, connecting, doing, giving. And, and it's, it's something that if children know, if they put these things in regularly, consistently and value them, then they will see the benefit on their health. And it has to be regular. It's like cleaning your teeth. You would not expect to clean your teeth once or twice and have, you know, not need to go to the dentist for for fillings. And it's the same sort of thing. And and, and you can still appreciate that mental health will fluctuate. You know, we've seen world events, you know, personal events happen that, that will throw people off kilter. But if you keep putting these things in regularly, uh, then you will have a much better chance of doing that. And I think 
for parents um, talking about these things, reinforcing these things, measuring these things. Um, and as I said, yes, role modeling. I heard Claire T Turnbull talking last night about the importance of role modeling. And I think this absolutely um, applies to, to well-being as well. Of course, Claire Turnbull there, the uh, principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Uh, Aditi, can I ask you, uh, you know, you meet the students as they arrive, as they walk through your doors. Many of them are only 18 or, or 19 when they come to university. Does this figure speak to you, the fact that nearly 40% of uh, young people aged between 18 to 24 in the Middle East are struggling with their mental health? Is that something that, that you've seen in, in your experience with university students? Oh, absolutely. Um, not only have I seen it, I've seen it increase over the years. So I've been teaching for a while and I've seen in the past couple of years, um, you know, students have been even more stressed out about their deadlines and their assignments. And it makes complete sense because, um, you know, one of the things that the pandemic has done is uh, it's left them with a lot less control than, uh, than they had before over their lives, um, you know, control about the study spaces that they are in, um, transitioning to university from schools has become really challenging. Um, a lot of students that were forced into, you know, family environments that may not have been as hospitable for them um, as is another additional challenge. So along with the challenges that students always have when it comes to university life, such as um, you know, adjusting to university, uh, managing their relationships with students, developing friendships, um, you know, understanding, questioning their own identity, um, their uh, issues around self-esteem. The pandemic has added like an additional layer of stress on them, and I can definitely see it in my work. Um, a lot of my, even though I teach, a lot of my time goes in reassuring them and managing the anxieties that they have around, um, you know, their, their assignments and the work that they're doing. And um, this is this is something that is very important because I see how much students' mental health affects their day-to-day -day lives, affects their ability to engage with the university education. So um, again, the, I completely agree with the findings of the study. We know that anxiety and depression are increasing amongst the student population, and that is something I can validate from my own personal experience with them as well. It's so interesting to speak to both of you because it sounds like Certainly, by the time the children get to university, they are struggling. Do you think that the children are struggling, Beth, when they're, you know, before that tip period? From your experience, are they finding it difficult in their, in their teens? You spoke of that, that age around 14 when, when you need to keep an eye. Yes, the, the, the adolescent period is, is, a, is a hugely challenging time for, for young people. Um, and that's because that there, are, there are some key things that are going on in that time. We, we have, um, the brain is changing and this is a relatively sort of new science. There was a time where people thought that, you know, um, brain development sort of finished in childhood. But now we see there's this huge change where the things, you know, we call it synaptic pruning. So the things that they, they do a lot of, the connections between those neurons get stronger and the things they do less of, uh, they become weaker. So of course, it's really important that they, they do things that are good for their health. And that comes around habits as well. So if they are not building good habits when they're teenagers, well, then it's very difficult when, they, when they're in university to try to uh, re-establish those things. We know that there's a huge drive and huge importance assigned to peers 
um, and the the impact of peers um, and social media now has has widened that term so you know it's important to get the approval not only of their peers in their social group that they can see and spend time with but also this wider world of the of, of social media and then the friends they have online so that's an additional pressure that also takes away from time that they have to just process things and just be and we all need that as um as human beings but but young people particularly and that is really missing um that 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 pressure that, sorry that time and so that builds the, the, the pressure um for young people so i think the combination of additional you know uh, work pressure and stress pressure we must remember that is that that often the number one um thing that children say that they are the most worried about and stressed about plus all the things that are going on in their mind you know in, in, their, in their development and if you couple with that the social media the screen time the technology and the way that's changed fundamentally changed the way we are communicating we are still grappling with it and, and students i think seem to be the victims of that when I come back, I want to discuss, I suppose it's a, a, an old age question, an age old question, I should say. I think it comes up every single generation, uh, whether or not it's actually harder for children to be happier now than when we were growing up. I think many of us sort of uh, remember our childhood through slightly gold uh, or rose tinted spectacles. Uh, and so I'd be interested to hear from, from you two professionals about whether or not it is actually uh, harder for children to be happier now. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to U7. Welcome back. Uh, now, we are discussing the fact that nearly 40% of young people aged 18 to 24 in the Middle East struggled with their mental health last year. That's according to a global survey by Sapien Labs, which is a non-profit organisation out of the United States. We wanted to canvas a, a bit of opinion on this. So we spoke to Claire Turnbull. Now, she's the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. And she said that encouraging students to talk about their feelings is the first step to ensuring the the mental health of children. At school and at RGS Guildford Dubai, we, we've embedded this into our daily life and lessons. And we really talk to them about how they're feeling. So we start from a really early age about linking their feelings with colours. And OK, so you're feeling a bit blue today. The next stage becomes on emotional regulation of how can I actually move from feeling blue to feeling yellow? And there are so many different techniques that we can talk about uh, with the children about things that they can do, things that their friends can do and things that they can then ask for help with. We also say, you know, when reflecting of the day, what are you, were your rays of sunshine? What were your puddles of mud? And what can we do differently about them and how do we feel? Then it grows through there about our whole a program of well-being. It's embedded again through our curriculum, through everything that's up on our displays and through the way we talk to each other. Our friendship benches, our ambassadors, all of this encapsulated is about encouraging our children to openly talk and discuss how they're feeling and to be proud of sharing those feelings. 
Really helpful to hear about how uh, Claire Turnbull deals with the topic in her school. Now, I've kept two eminent guests with us to discuss this topic. They've been waiting over the break. We've got Beth Kerr, who is Group Director of Wellbeing at Cognita Schools, who own several schools here in the UAE, including uh, Claire Dunn Turnbull School, uh, Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Uh, also joined by Aditi Batia, who is a lecturer at the School of Science and Technology at Middlesex University here. Uh, and just before the break, I, I warned you that I was going to ask whether or not it is harder for children to be happier nowadays, whether it's harder for young adults to be happier nowadays. Aditi, what do you think to that, that question? I mean, you're, you look a lot younger than me, uh, so you're probably closer to that age than I am. Uh, do you remember it being hard to be happy? Oh, wow. I definitely remember it being hard to be happy. But then I think that's just um, a normal part of the transition of being an adolescent. I think um, I, we rarely find adolescents who are always happy. And if they are, they're probably happy for the wrong reasons. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the challenges of growing up involve difficult experiences. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to probably take the controversial route and say that perhaps it isn't... Um, you know, as hard for young adults as we think it is, because on the one hand, with the pandemic, we've had so much more, you know, increase in focus on mental health and the awareness about it. And at the same time, what I see in my day to day experience is a lot of young people who are finding new ways to connect with each other, who are desperate for that human connection that you mentioned earlier, whether it's through Snapchat or TikTok, at the core of it, they are trying to maintain and you know sustain and uh, develop their relationships with their peers and each other now across the world. So they do have a lot of you know support. At the same time, I do think that um, that you know it's harder for children to be happy. This has always been the case. I think every generation it is hard to be happy. Now, at the same time, the social media that I'm referring to that brings them closer uh, to each other also um, causes a whole other range of issues that we uh, are all increasingly aware of. So, yeah, it is definitely um, a double-edged sword, but one that I see more and more young people, um, uh, you know, used to, to the advantage of their mental health. I mean, Beth Kerr, we've heard a lot uh, from uh, Claire and from you about what schools are doing to encourage children uh, to protect their mental health and, and how to handle their own emotions. But I imagine there's quite a lot of parents listening now thinking, oh, my goodness, my, ch- you know, my child's approaching that adolescence period uh, or they seem a bit blue, you know, as a consequence of the pandemic, they miss their friends. What can parents do in order to help their children? Because the last thing, I mean, literally, I, all I say is I don't really care what the children end up you know, doing or being as long as they're happy. And so it's it's literally, it's your top line as a parent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very difficult for parents of adolescents because they are going through this phase where they are, rightly so, moving towards and trying to find their own identity and moving more towards their friends and away from you. And they're probably pushing away from you a little bit and they're using you as a boundary to to test things out on. And sometimes it doesn't feel very nice as as a parent of of a teenager I can I can attest to that I think you know from, from the messages are the same from um, from the messages Claire was talking about there communication is the key um, and the communication in, in adolescence might look a little bit different so it might be recognizing okay I really need to make sure that my child understands that I'm I'm here for them 
they are a bit sulky, they don't really like talking, they keep slamming the door. Uh, how else can I communicate? And, and maybe using the ways that they communicate most of the time with their friends, you know, to, to promote that. So, okay, it might be that your teenage son, you might just text him and say, you know, how things you all right? And he, you know, an emoji might, might suffice. It's about recognizing, when you look at communication, looking beyond just talking. So for parents to look not just at, at what they're saying, because that might not be overly effective in, in the teenagers, but looking at you know their, their behavior, their uh, their sort of attitude. So if they come in from school and then you say, how was school? And they say, oh, rubbish. Rubbish might actually mean it was fine. If they say fine and they, they go straight into their room, that might be a bit more worrying. So it is difficult because you're obviously trying to translate things, which is about getting to know and recognizing what your child's cues, their behavioral cues perhaps are telling you about their behavior and making lots of opportunities to talk. And the other tip I would give about talking um, in the adolescent period particularly is it, it doesn't go so well often if you sort of sit opposite them and say, no, how was your day? Tell me about things. How are you feeling? Um, but sometimes when you're doing a, an activity together, but side by side, you know, whether it's you know, walking the dog or cooking or it, it's not as intense and it's easier, perhaps less threatening for a, a child to just sort of um, slip in that something, you know, they might be a little bit worried about something. So I think if you if you provide those opportunities for communication and be reassured that even though you can't solve it, that's okay. You don't need to solve it. That, that for the student, for your for your child, if they know that you're there, that is a really strong protective factor to help them get through their adolescence. And the, the other thing I would say, we've talked a bit about the, the different things that contribute to um, to, to health and well-being, and if there were just one I was going to pick out that parents can really sort of prioritize, it's the sleep. We know that our teenagers are sleep deprived. They are now sleeping an average hour, hour and a half less than, than they were 20 or 30 years ago. We know that sleep is, um, in, in every single mental health condition, sleep is a disturbed sleep, rather, is, is, a, is a symptom and often is, is one of the first things they try to target. So if you can work with your teenager to, to get good sleep hygiene, appreciating that sleep is pushed later for, for teenagers, they're not as uh, sleepy early on in the night, but that still doesn't mean that you can really can't prioritise it for them. Because if you're well rested, then you're better able to be resilient and tackle some of the other challenges that, that you know, we, we don't have so much control over. So you're controlling the controllables. I can attest to that. Uh, I went through the sleep deprivation with the small babies and I have to say that that definitely slightly drove me, drove me over the edge for sure. Yeah. Um, we've got one, I've got time for one last question uh, to Aditi. I just want to ask about what support universities offer because if our children aged 18 to 24, are, you know, 40% of them are struggling. Uh, how do universities help? I don't have very long with you, I'm afraid, just a minute. No way. So um, I think with universities, it should be a systemic thing, like the entire ecosystem should be designed to support students. At our university, this is very much the case. We've got a wellness office that overlooks student and staff well-being. Um, I run a student support group myself where we meet once a week and we discuss different topics, different things that students are experiencing. And just, um, you know, uh, universities can do their best to make students aware of what support is available for them and encourage them to seek that support. At the same time, we um, have as much empathy as possible for the students' experiences and their challenges. 
and um, and have uh, have the space safe spaces for them um, that are designed by them uh, or designed by the university um, and just continue to uh, to support their journey at the university and that's definitely something that we uh, we do at Middlesex as well. Very encouraging words and amazing advice from both of you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry to rush that that last answer. I appreciate your time, Aditi. Uh, speaking to Beth Kerr, Group Director of Wellbeing at Cognita Schools and also Aditi Bhatia, the lecturer of the School of Science and Technology at Middlesex University. A fascinating discussion. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. So as we all know, a huge part of the school curriculum is sport. And the UAE, it it really does benefit from several brilliant sports facilities, not just in the schools, uh, but also sort of sponsored by the authorities, essentially. And they train children up to the very highest level. Only last week, several schools here took part in the World School Games. And Zina has been researching some of the UAE's uh, top young sports men and women and joins me in the studio now. Hi, Z. Hey, Georgia. Earlier this week, I spoke to Dubai resident Umar Hamid. You spoke to him as well about a different topic. Remember that? Now, who will soon be competing for the World World Indoor Athletic Championships in Belgrade. He's there now. He's due to compete tomorrow and he's representing Pakistan. Uh, he's also the director of uh, AIS or Athletes in Schools Athletics. So he's training kids uh, in the field of athletics. I asked him first how the kids he's training are doing now that sports activities are back in schools. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a long time coming, to be honest. We've, we've waited patiently and, and done everything that's been asked of us. So it's nice to finally get back to doing what we do best. And could you please tell us what uh, the effect has been on your, on the children that you work with, the children that um, you train, uh, first of all, when all of these activities were cancelled and now that they're, they're back again? Yeah, so we realised that without sport, these guys are just going to be sat at home playing on video games. There isn't much for them to do, so we went online, so we did everything over Zoom. And so we still had our classes, but we were running them over Zoom five days a week. And we, we had a really good turnout, to be honest. But as soon as activities were allowed again, we had a huge number of kids um, joining us. I think the, the little break from sport has actually, in a way, inspired, inspired parents and inspired kids to, to really get out of the house and, and do a little bit more. That's amazing to hear. And I know that you're a role model for all of these kids. And now you've got exciting news to share with us. In the next 24 hours, you will be competing in the World Indoor Athletics Championships in Belgrade. Tell us all about that. Yeah, you will be representing I mean, Pakistan. I will, yes. Yeah. So this will, be my, uh, this will be my fourth major championship for Pakistan. Um, obviously, I, I'm, I'm British-born, uh, but my parents are both Pakistani, so I'm, I'm a I'm proud to represent Pakistan. I work with a lot of kids. We work with around 600 kids every week. It's important for me to continue to inspire them. And I think the best way I can do that is continue to exercise and show them that, you know, these coaches that are coaching them still have the ability to, to compete at, a, at an international level. So, yeah, tomorrow I, I line up against the, the fastest men in the world. 
over 60 meters and um, and and try my luck over over the distance to to hopefully uh, hopefully for me my personal goal which is just to to run a personal best we're all rooting for you and as you know dubai eye has a lot of pakistani listeners and i'm sure they're very proud of you tell us about the championships itself uh, what's going to take place throughout the entire event it's the indoor world championships that, so it's going to be all the indoor events so the the furthest distance that we run is 60 meters but there are other events like 400 meters 800 meters 1500 meters for example it's the first main championship where the covid protocols have been slightly lowered and um, so it'll be very very interesting just to see how everybody adapts to that we don't really know how it's going to be until tomorrow whether we need to wear masks whether we don't whether we're you know whether we're it's almost back to normal but uh, it's a great stepping stone for all athletes as well just to get back to some sort of normality and and remember what it's like to compete again uh, in front of like a crowd uh, so hopefully it'll be a packed out crowd crowds that's a big thing we didn't have crowds at tournaments for a long time i forgot what it, it was like it's like to run in front of a crowd but I've been I've been walking around, I've been warming up, and there there is so many people here from so many different nationalities, so many different countries. It's going to be a fantastic atmosphere. Preparation hasn't been great in the sense that I've actually had COVID twice. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the athletes are going to be in the same boat, to be honest. I feel like a lot of people have had COVID and have had to deal with the symptoms of COVID. It's a separate challenge that us guys are going to be facing and lining up is, is secondary to that. So COVID has leveled the playing field for all of you. Speaking of different countries, <laughs> different nationalities, who are the crowd favourites or the countries that will be very challenging to beat? To be honest, there's a few favourites, uh, but the favourite has to be the Olympic champion, Marcel Jacobs from Italy. Um, he's, a, he's last year's Tokyo Olympic champion over the 100 metres. He's going to be lining up. I could potentially be drawn against somebody of that caliber. There's a couple of Americans that are always in there. Uh, there's a couple. There's a there's a Chinese um, athlete who's in there as well. So all the athletes are a bit closer in terms of times. Realized over the last year, there's no outright favorite like a Usain Bolt anymore. Um, every athlete has the opportunity, and I think that in itself has inspired a lot of athletes to to train a little bit harder because they know that these medals are are up for grabs. There are a lot of kids that adore you, kids that you train, a lot of young athletes here in the UAE. Before you compete, any message for them? I suppose the message for them is that they can achieve whatever they want to achieve as long as they continue to work hard and stay focused. Nobody is to tell them that they're not able to, to achieve their goals. Discipline, focus, um, and whether a child is naturally talented or may not be the most naturally talented to us, it, it's irrelevant for us if they have the right mindset. Um, and they're hungry to train and they turn up on time. These type of things are the most important things for us. So I suppose the message to these guys is, please do watch me, cheer me on, um, and see you guys at training and the hard work doesn't stop. Inspiring words there from Umar Hamid, who lives in Dubai and is competing in the World Indoor Athletic Championships in Belgrade this weekend for Pakistan. So all the best to you, Umar. We're all rooting for you. Yeah, huge uh, congratulations. Amazing achievement there. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there. This week, uh, His Highness... 
Lieutenant General Sheikh Saif bin Zayed, who is Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Interior for the UAE, has called on social media companies to do more to protect children from online sexual exploitation. Speaking at the World Early Childhood Development Forum in Abu Dhabi, His Highness said incidents of online child exploitation across the world were up by 106% from the previous year, 2020, and highlighted the need for tougher action. Now, I want to know, is this something that worries you about your children. Have you ever spotted suspicious activity on your children's social media sites? Uh, It is a concern for me. I've got children aged uh, eight and seven, I had to think for a moment then. Uh, but certainly it's, uh, it's something that worries me already about what they're seeing online and, and, and how I can protect them. They're not on social media yet, so I'm not so worried about that, but I'm sure it's going to become a serious concern for me uh, in the future. Now, we did ask several social media organisations if they were available for an interview this morning, but sadly, no one had a spokesperson available. However, in the past, we have spoken to TikTok about this subject. The social media company has 1 billion users around the world and recently announced a safety advisory council for the Middle East to help guide their policies. Uh, Sarah Tukan, who is head of public policy at TikTok Middle East, Turkey, Africa and Pakistan, uh, spoke about this uh, safety advisory council and said that their focus is keeping children online safe. I don't the council think- itself brings together leaders from civil society as well as the academia world from various sectors in MENA that specializes not only in online safety, broadly speaking, but also in specific areas that stems from that, such as child safety, online bullying and harassment, hate speech, and so on and so forth. And they will lend us the benefit of their expertise, of their know-how, of their knowledge and insights that comes from their own practical experiences. And we have this wide variety of expertise as well as perspectives, which obviously reflects the diverse uh, nature of our platform. So in this previous interview, Sarah also said that TikTok has already got global community guidelines in place and that this advisory council in the region will decide whether there is a need for additional safety guards to protect users here. From the community guidelines, we have certain policies and strategies and as well campaigns that we work on to address online safety. And on that, yes, we will be discussing those with these members to see if uh, there is a need to do something more or to, to address a, a particular challenge. And if yes, what is the best way to address it? Either be it, you know, through a policy or a strategy or in certain areas, it might be, you know, adding a certain feature or tool on the application itself. So, of course, TikTok uh, does indeed uh, try its hardest to make sure that harmful videos are removed within 24 hours of posting. They say that 93% of those videos are taken down, including tapes encouraging things like anorexia and safe harm. Uh, They also have 95% of these harmful videos were taken down before a user could even report them and they use artificial intelligence to do this. So that just gives you some sense of how social media companies are trying to ensure that children are protected from harmful material online. But obviously, 
there is always more that can be done. Now, joining us to discuss this topic is Tim Evans. He's the Educational Technology Coordinator from a Cognita school called Stanford American School, Hong Kong. Uh, Cognita owns several schools here in the UAE, including Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Also joined by Henry Platten. Now, he's a, purport, a former police sergeant and the founder of Go Bubble, which is a safety tech company designed to create a safer, inter- safer internet for the children. Thank you both for joining us on the line. Uh, now, tell me, what is the reality? Are there people out there who are targeting children? How bad is the problem? Uh, Henry, I'm going to go to you first on that topic. Do you see it uh, do you see it as a widespread problem? Are there predators trying to get in touch with our children online? Yes. Um, sadly, uh, this is, uh, it's not limited to any particular uh, part of the world. This is a truly global problem uh, and is one which is as old as social media and, and the internet itself. This is something which I've certainly seen through my time in the police and since leaving the police and setting up Go Bubble over the last 16, 17 years. The the problem is that the traditional approaches which social platforms and not just social platforms, but also any form of community sites. So we include gaming sites such as Roblox in this. Wherever there is the ability to connect with another user, which is inherently the whole uh, prospect of the Internet, there is the opportunity for predators and paedophiles and people who wish to cause ill will to others to cause harm, upset and distress. Um, unfortunately, traditional approaches by social platforms and by games developers online, unfortunately, always fall short. Uh, the, the problem is growing. It grows year on year, uh, whilst the budgets and the reach of these platforms grows exponentially. I mean, that is uh, quite alarming to hear, to hear about that, um, to hear, to put that into the context. Um, Tim, to, to what extent do you think that parents should panic? I mean, I, I have to say, uh, you know, as a mother, I get a sort of slightly rising feeling of, of panic when I, when I hear that. But I suppose it is important to keep these things in proportion. Yes, uh, it is. It's a concern, definitely. But it's almost it's something that we've been aware of for 10, 15 years since social media came about. So we could, if we're being honest, enough hasn't been done um, in that time. It's where everything's evolved and, and COVID to a certain extent has accelerated this even more where there were so-called predators in youth clubs outside schools, in parks. Well, those spaces now were social spaces. So those spaces now have gone online. So where do the youth of today, even more so during COVID, where do they socialise? They socialise online. So where have these predators gone? They've moved online. Um, so it's a, it's a massive challenge. Um, the, I do feel everybody has a part to, pay, to play, um, potentially no, no one more so than the actual social media platforms themselves, uh, because we're only limited as educators and parents to do so much. But if these platforms are allowing certain access at certain times by certain people, then, then there's, there's, it's an even bigger challenge. So, Henry, how can we protect children online? I mean, I, I'm going to ask Tim in a minute how children can be taught to protect themselves. But, you know, you work for a, for a social media site that, that's aimed at children. You, you know, it's, it's aimed at students under the age of 13. You must have the protection of children on that site at the very forefront of your mind. 
Uh, yes, and not just as uh, somebody who, who leads the organisation, but also as a dad. You know, Rocco's five. In fact, he's six tomorrow, and Sophia's eight. And for me, the mission of creating a safer internet for all is something that drives every single decision uh, that we make as an organisation. This is where the frustration comes in with some of the bigger players, that actually if they had the same ethos and drive, it would actually help to resolve this problem very quickly. So, for example, you know, technology that we've created, all AI-driven, can actually check content within a thousandth of a second before it appears and identify any harm, any risk, stop it appearing, but then also look at ways for educating and informing users to actually think about what does the impact of that message mean for somebody else and then going one step further and actually rewarding kindness because the whole ability of technology is if we look at the society that we want our children to live in in the future and digital is a massive part of that there are huge opportunities with the right mindset to create the right environment for all now, the beauty as well with the technology that we have is we do actually now license it out to forward-thinking organizations, particularly those within uh, sporting arenas, where they're looking at preserving the mental health and well-being of athletes and players. And they've seen a dramatic impact there in terms of just in a short space of time, how we can actually now patch into the mainstream social platforms and keep them safer for others. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. So we are discussing online safety on the programme this afternoon. This comes after His Highness Lieutenant General Sheikh Saif bin Zayed, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Interior for the United Arab Emirates, called this week for social media companies to do more to protect children from online sexual exploitation. Joined on the line now uh, by two experts, we have Henry Platten, who's a former police sergeant and founder of GoBubble, which is a safety tech company creating a safer internet for the children. Also, Tim Evans, the educational tech co- technology coordinator from a Cognita school in Hong Kong uh, called Stanford American School. Uh, of course, Cognita owns several schools here in the United Arab Emirates, including Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Uh, now, Tim, um, I hope you're well. Uh, can I just ask you, what can schools do to help protect children? And what can children learn how to do to protect themselves? That's a bit of a double whammy there. Choose, do you go, go with the, the what can children do to protect themselves first? I think it's, I mentioned that before the break there about it's 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 a challenge for society and everybody's got a responsibility to pay and as educators what we're wanting to do is educate our staff first okay teachers need to know what children are accessing what platforms are available um prime example is an app a platform called discord it's used by so many children yet the majority of parents have potentially never heard of it so we need to do our homework there first, and then what we're wanting to do is educate children and parents as well when it comes to hopefully making um, better choices when it comes to using social media. The majority of countries, is naturally, it's great having Henry here, there's no social media platform that is legally available for under-13s. Yet we all know under-13-year-old st- children, we call them students, children are accessing these platforms. So we're 
platforms like GoBubble, there's there's an opportunity for them to to wet their toes basically and and they and, and get into it. we can't just say look they're not going to access these platforms because they are so what we need to do is we need to get ahead of it and educate them and that's what we're looking to do um as part as as the schools in cognito that's what we're wanting to do we're putting together robust digital citizenship um it's a subject it's something that's been taught weekly in schools with with children are being shown how to use technology responsibly but at the same time they are aware of of what to do if they do see things that that, that i'm sure they will see one day that is inappropriate I have to admit, I'm actually worried that my children have already seen something inappropriate. Like in the last week, their their language around certain subjects has changed slightly. And, and, you know, my mind immediately jumps to, oh, no, I hope, you know, one of the other older boys hasn't shown them something inappropriate on, on his phone or, or something to that extent. It is just so easily accessible here, even in the UAE, where obviously there are protections on the Internet. Henry... I mean, are there things that we can do? I mean, I, I, I feel quite sort of adequate when it comes to tech, to be honest, but I still feel like I don't really know how to protect my children online. Are there measures that you can learn with, with all the devices that you have in the house? There are. I mean, different devices will have different settings which are built into them, which we can all access and, and have control over. Um, I think Tim's really summed it up beautifully there when talking about digital citizenship and, and it involving all. Part of that is about discussion and it's about conversation. And as parents, having those conversations, just as, as you're doing, um, Georgia, with, with your own children and you're hearing these words that they're coming up with, Tim, I'm going to come back to you. Um, when Do you have discussions with the parents who attend your school about what they can do? Do you educate parents as well? Yeah, we do, we do as, almost as much as we do with children. So if we're addressing something with children, be it privacy or something like that, at the same time then we're putting together um, newsletters or, or blog posts or some sort of graphic, whichever, as many forms of media as possible to access for the parents to access because because most of the device time is 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 or unsupervised device time will be at home okay it's not just at school it's the weekend it's it's on public transport outside it's it's almost a, a babysitting device I mean, there's a whole other conversation there but it's Don't worry, that, it definitely idea is. That, that happens in my house it's fair to say yeah, <laughs> occasionally yeah. So it's that idea of of educating them about one what children are accessing, um, but at the same time not over alarming them in the sense that it's just media now. Twenty years ago, it's magazines, it was paper, it was videos and things like that hidden under the bed or what have you. Well, now it's just digital. So now we just need to just give guidance to parents um, on how they can address that and how they can support their child. Do you know, this has been such an interesting conversation. It's been a pleasure speaking to both of you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, That was Tim Evans, the Educational Technology Coordinator for Stanford American School Hong Kong, and also Henry Platten, former police sergeant and founder of GoBubble, which is a safety tech company designed to create a safer internet for children. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, Thank you very much indeed, and we will be coming back to this topic again, I'm absolutely sure, in the future. This is Eye on Education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people
Right, it is time for our My Classroom feature because every week we like to cross live to an unusual school to explore alternative methods of education. And I'm joined uh, on the line now by Mel Triggs, who is a qualified forest school instructor at Wild Embers, which is an alternative provider of outdoor education in Devon, which is in the south coast uh, of the English countryside. Mel, thank you so much for joining us on the line. It's lovely to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. It's brilliant to have you with us. Now, uh, I understand that the school, uh, one of the, the sort of major commitments of the school is to support children to thrive in nature and also to thrive in themselves. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, where your school is located? We have um, <clears throat> several sites. We're located in a small village just out of um, a town in Devon. We are um, using a roundhouse at the moment for lots of our education. We have um, fires there. We have availability to streams. And um, we allow the children to decompress. They can have um, play as well as education. It sounds completely idyllic. Do they spend a lot of time basically outdoors playing? We are outside all day. And um, you can bring the curriculum in during the play sessions. So if we're teaching knife work, which we do, we teach them how to build fires, um, how to make things. We teach them how to cook on a fire. I think it's so important that children are educated in learning how to look after themselves from an early age. Even if it's just learning how to cook one dish every term they can leave us then knowing how to cook four or five or even six things. Now, I know my boys who are eight and seven would absolutely love to go to a forest school, but would they still learn how to read and write? We have, um, well, we do at ours, we do one-to-one sessions with children. So if they can no longer go to a mainstream school, then they are um, they're sent to us. We allow them to decompress for a while and then we start the education with them. So we do, um, we do try and stick to the curriculum, and but we do it in a softer way. It sounds like you have um, that you teach students who've who've been troubled in the past or, or found it hard to access normal education in the past. We're very lucky. We do. Um, we have a provision for home educated children, and we run this on a Monday, and we're just starting on a Tuesday. We have, we're working very closely with Torbay Council for an alternative provision where if the children are really troubled and can't go to school and they've, they've struggled in the classroom, they've struggled with friends, then we'll take them on, whether it's for a year, a few terms, just to find out if we can help them in any way. And they do open up and they relax a lot more and then a lot of them are able to go back into the classroom. So, I mean, when I describe the classroom in the forest, of course, there isn't really a classroom because it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's all outdoors, as you mentioned earlier. But how many children do you have in each group? We try and keep it small. Um, we have 10 to 12 children for our home education groups. We have for our special educational needs, we have a much smaller group. So there'll be two or three members of staff with only six children. And um, these children come from a variety of schools around Devon. We try and do it so that we can give a lot of attention to each child and really work through their problems with them. So we can have up to 15 children, but we try and keep it smaller. 
It really is an, an unusual way of teaching. It's, it's totally different to sort of kids sitting at a desk, you know, a class of around 20 to 30. Do you feel that, it, that it's actually better for children to learn outdoors? Is this a real passion project for you? I worked mainstream. I learned a lot through mainstream. I think that you've really got to think about what your child wants. Some children could thrive outside all day, every day, and we can teach them so much and the curriculum. Some children wouldn't be able to cope with the rain, the wind, the cold, and they, as a parent, you know what your child prefers. But we are thriving as a small, very small company and we're getting fantastic results for the children that we're seeing. I didn't think about that because, of course, the uh, the English countryside isn't known for its good weather. So often the kids must be out in waterproofs, right? Because it, I, mean, I know, Devon, it pours with rain on a, on a sort of weekly basis. We do have a lot of rain. So, yes, we um, every time a new person starts, we will ask them to bring lots of spare clothes, lots of warm clothes and always lots of waterproofs. If it isn't raining, then we are in the stream playing. So we are going to get wet, whatever. I love the, um, there's a line that I remember talking, I was talking to a Swedish family once and they, they looked at me utterly bemused at the idea that I ever got cold because, and they just said, there's no such thing as, as bad weather, just inappropriate clothes. You just need to wear warmer kit. Yeah, that's what we go on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you describe the, the school day uh, briefly? Let me just see what my timings are. Yeah. Can, can you describe the school day? How does it start? Because obviously we're used to the formal style, which would be sort of assembly uh, here they sing the national anthem and then maybe you sit down and do maths and then you get a break two hours later for a snack and then you're back in and then you have lunch. Do you do a similar pattern in your forest school? No. Um, we meet. Um, we welcome all the children. Um, we allow them for 10 minutes play with the children because some of the friends they haven't seen for a week. Um, so they can have a Zoom round, get rid of all of their energy. And then we have a circle time. So we all meet around the fire in a circle We'll talk about what we're going to do for the day. We will talk about interests of the children. So somebody might have been away for the weekend. They may have brought something in they'd like to show us. And then we start with, we call them the challenges. So we'll start with the challenges of the day. And really, when you're outside, the children are using so much more energy that we seem to snack constantly. So we try and have a snack time where we're all together, but the children seem hungry all the time. <laughs> I think I think that's something that every parent will uh, recognise from the school holidays or from home learning, that, that, that snacking features highly in children's lives. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and so what, what role does the school play in the community? Because that is such an important, uh, I mean, it, it just is, I think all schools in all communities play an important role. And, and I think that is part of their job. So do you feel, I mean, you're in a tiny village in Devon in the countryside. Dartmouth is a tiny place. Uh, do you feel like you know everyone in the village? It's really interesting. We are a community based group. So we do community days as well. We do um, family days. We do father and son days, which is really important if a child is missing um a male in the family that they can communicate to other men. Um, we have mother and baby days, so we are involving all of the community in most of the things that we do. 
I have to say, it sounds absolutely idyllic. Amazing to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Mel Triggs is a qualified forest school instructor at Wild Embers, which is an alternative provider of outdoor education in Devon in the English countryside. Do check out their website. It makes you basically want to move to the English countryside. Uh, Although... It's worth remembering the rain, I think. So, Mel, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to speak to you.